We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Uh, just quickly, uh, some quick words about our very special guest tonight. Uh, I usually don't read bios or anything, and this is very short, but I just want to make sure you all know who is sitting here tonight. Uh, ben Bradley Jr. spent 25 years with the Boston Globe. As deputy managing editor, Ben oversaw the Globe's Pulitzer Prize winning coverage of the sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. He also reported overseas for the Globe from such ballparks as Afghanistan, South Africa, <laughs> the Middle East, Latin America, and Vietnam. Uh, ben has written three previous books, and tonight's book, The Kid, The Immortal Life of Ted Williams, published by Little Brown and Company, uh, written by Ben Bradley Jr. Uh, 400 hitters and Pulitzer Prize winners don't fall out of trees. Uh, so please join me in welcoming both of those to the clubhouse tonight, Ben Bradley Jr. Thanks, thanks Jay. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Pleasure to be in, uh, in New York. Socks are 0-1-1. The Yankees are opening tonight. Uh, we still feel pretty good about our season. We, we, uh, we wish you hadn't uh, taken Ellsbury from us, but I think you overpaid. <laughs> as usual. So As usual, yeah. And not to mention the Japanese pitcher, but uh, he's only a fifth starter, isn't he? Uh, at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what, what, we'll, what we're going to do is... Uh, I don't know how many of you have read Ben's book yet, which is fantastic. Uh, it's 856 pages. and Don't uh, intimidate them. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that includes all the appendix and index and all picture, that. It's, it's right? underrated. Pictures. A lot of pictures. Yeah. <laughs> it's only two pages, actually. Right? <laughs> uh, so Ben spent uh, about 10 years, I believe, writing this. Uh, you interviewed over 600 people. About half the book is about Ted's ball playing career, about half not. Uh, I think I may let our very knowledgeable crowd ask a bunch of the baseball questions, so maybe you and I can discuss some of the other <coughs> aspects which I found com fascinating of what you uncovered. And if you wouldn't mind, you got me in right away with uh, the preface mm -hmm. where you uh, talk about your childhood bedroom. Uh, and as a 10-year-old, what happened with uh, at that time? And maybe if you could just talk about a little bit about that. Uh. Sure. Well, <clears throat> um, Williams was a, a figure in, in my life. Um, I'm old enough that I saw him uh, play the last uh, three or four years of his career in the late 50s at uh, Fenway Park. And um, as a kid, I would uh, go to... Um, as many games as I could, and uh, got his autograph once. Um, I was one of 50 or so screaming brats waiting outside the, the, the ballpark where players came to get their uh, cars. And uh, he didn't always sign, but he stopped and signed that day. Um, in in his in his death. I was struck by uh, how much interest there still was in his life and how many lives he had touched. Uh, I remember the Boston Globe ran a couple of pages of letters and they were from grandfathers talking about um, how they had introduced their sons to baseball through Williams and sons, uh, their sons, and he was certain glue in the social fabric. And... Um, I, I took a look at the early books on Williams, and they were all done by sports writers who concentrated on his exploits on the field. Um, but I don't have a sport, I mean, I'm just a fan. In the news business, um, I was never a sports writer, so I brought more of a news sensibility uh, to this book. Um, the, the early books written by the writers had 
virtually nothing, I thought, about uh, his personal life and what really made him tick. And uh, he had a fascinating, tumultuous life uh, growing up in the Depression in San Diego. His mother was a soldier in the Salvation Army out until all hours of the night saving souls on the streets of San Diego, but never home for Ted or his younger brother, uh, Danny. And so they grew up as some of the first latchkey kids and um, waiting for the mother to come home. The father was an alcoholic, uh, largely absent, not a factor in his life. And uh, another thing that fascinated me was that he was Mexican-American, Williams, a, a little factoid that hardly anyone knew which didn't come out until uh, a month or two before he died. His mother was Mexican, and he chose to conceal this his entire life, worried that the prejudice of the day might hurt his career. And um, he fought in, in two wars, which is um, extraordinary, missing uh, nearly five years of his prime. And one of the great parlor games that people play when discussing Williams is speculating about what his final numbers might have been had he not missed those five years. And he probably would have been up around Ruth's uh, 700 home runs, uh, well over 3,000 hits. But I argue in the book that his legacy is enhanced by his service in these two wars because it gave him uh, sort of a heroic sheen that he otherwise would not have had. And... Uh, it's particularly interesting, the war service, I think, when compared to the unfathomable notion that any modern superstar athlete would serve in one war, never mind two. You can't see A-Rod in Afghanistan <laughs> or Iraq, can you? I'd like to. <laughs> Actually, in, with uh, his war service... Uh, I believe you uncovered this, uh, or uh, certainly I didn't know about it. Uh, if you could just talk a little bit about, there's always the, the image of all these guys as the, the enthusiastic war heroes and so forth. What was his attitude like when he found out he was going to go to... Uh, well, it, it's interesting. He, um, he didn't, you know, after Pearl Harbor, uh, unlike Bob Feller, who was first in line to enlist. Williams didn't want to go in. And he had a legitimate deferment because uh, he, he was the sole supporter of his mother. And this was called a 3A deferment. So it was legitimate, but um, in the patriotic atmosphere of everyone rushing in, he was criticized for not going in. Uh, he decided he wanted to play all of the 1942 season, for which he won the Triple Crown, and uh, but during the summer he was getting extraordinary heat uh, he would receive uh, you know, hate mail calling him uh, chicken he would get blank pieces of yellow paper the color of cowardice and uh, finally the pressure built and built and uh, he cut a deal with the Navy whereby um, he would enlist uh, if they would let him play out the season so he went in and uh, his service was extraordinary. You know, he didn't, uh, he didn't, uh, he wasn't just doing uh, KP duty or playing service baseball the way one Joe DiMaggio did was. Uh, he, he was an elite Marine Corps fighter pilot, top gun. And he didn't see combat in World War II, but he, he uh, was recalled for Korea, much against uh, his, his will. Uh, he was he was furious at that, and it did seem unfair. He had served three years, and after all, uh, so five years is a lot to ask of somebody. But he saw combat there, and there's a scene in the book where I described uh, what it was like when he was shot down, and I was able to track down one of the pilots on the mission with him that day who helped guide him in. And I mean, it's an extraordinary story. Yeah. He was shot, he lost the hydraulics in his plane, he lost the radio contact, the wheels wouldn't come down, and the plane was on fire. I mean, how bad can it get? <laughs> and uh, he brought it in uh, on its belly and skidded for a mile uh, in flames, leaped out, not a scratch on him. So uh, he was very lucky. 
Absolutely. And uh, since you mentioned the name uh, DiMaggio, if you could just talk a little bit about... Uh, well, Tom Clavin was here. I don't know if you know Tom. Tom wrote the book, The DiMaggio's, about the three brothers. Mm-hmm. And within that book, he, he talks a lot about Dom and Ted, their relationship. If you could just talk a little bit about Ted and Joe, what type of relationship they had, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I have a chapter on that. Right. Uh, it's called Ted and Joe. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not rocket science. Is it? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, they, they obviously were, were great rivals during their careers. Um, but they had an ongoing relationship um, after their careers ended. And uh, for Joe, the rivalry uh, was fierce until, until they both died. For Williams, it was uh, friendly. Um, they were opposites in almost every respect. Uh, Joe was this quiet and sullen Never said much. Williams was mercurial, um, you know, always spouting off. Um, Joe would smoke incessantly in the dugout. Even uh, Williams never, never did. Joe loved the nightlife. Uh, Williams liked to be by himself and go uh, fishing. Uh, Joe hated fishing. His father was a fisherman. He wanted to get as far away from it <laughs> as he could. Williams, it was like a second passion. And uh, in their interpersonal uh, relationships, they were, uh, they were cordial, never close. Joe was um, privately disparaging of Williams. When he, was, when he would talk about Ted to his friends, he would say, tell him to hold up his hand. How many rings does he have? And of course, Ted didn't have one ring. He was only in one World Series, and DiMaggio had whatever, 10 or something. And uh, he'd say, uh, and he would, he would disparage him as a one-dimensional player. He was only a hitter, which is true, really. Uh, he, didn't, he wasn't interested in uh, fielding. He famously said they don't pay off on fielding, <laughs> which is true. You know, you read stories today, and uh, newspaper stories are really all about a guy's hitting ability and what his hitting stats are. They don't really concentrate on his fielding percentage. But So certainly Joe was the better all-around player, but Ted didn't really uh, care about that. And uh, Joe, uh, Ted was more generous to Joe uh, when he talked about him to his friends, and always praising him as uh, the, the best all-around player. So they had this interesting rivalry that extended after their careers. And and Ted was very close with Dom. Yes, yes, they were the best friends. And uh, you know, during Joe's famous uh, 56-game hitting streak in 1941, uh, Ted would always ask the get the latest information from the fellow in the scoreboard in the left field wall. They had a, um, a, a you know a, a wire uh, ticker out there that would have the latest scores and. Uh, scoreboard guy would yell out to Ted, Joe got his hit today. Joe would call over to call over to Don on center field. Joe got his hit. Joe got his hit. So, <laughs> that was nice. Yeah. And a couple of areas I'd like to uh, just touch on before we open it up for uh, from our crowd. As a writer's writer, you have this uh, tremendous chapter in the book about the relationship between Ted and the press. Yeah. And this whole player-press dynamic, really. Mm-hmm. It's really a, a, a fascinating chapter. If you could just talk a little bit about that area. Well, Williams uh, always claimed he got a bad press. And uh, maybe it's because I'm a, I'm, I'm a journalist, but I, I was fascinated by the dynamic between he and the writers. And back then, it was only newspaper writers. Uh, Boston, if you can believe it, had nine newspapers. Um I only, only wish uh, newspapers were as healthy today as they are, as they were back then. And there was no TV, of course, and uh, barely any radio. And um, Williams always felt that he got a, a bad press. Actually, he didn't. He got a great press. But there were a few leading columnists, uh, notably one called Dave Egan of the old uh, Boston Record. 
and uh, his mission was to take down whoever was up. So he was Williams owned the town, and uh, so he would always give Ted the needle. He would refer to him as T. Williams Esquire. And uh, drive Ted crazy. And and he would send the clubhouse boy out to get the record every day and see what Egan had wrote. And invariably it would be something critical. And uh, he would simply tar the the press with a broad brush based on what Egan and a few other columnists wrote about him. And uh, he, he was naive about the press. He didn't appreciate that. He, you know, he, he wanted fame, Williams, but not the inconvenience of celebrity. Um, he didn't, he didn't uh, appreciate that uh, fans would like to know something about him off the field. He thought even the most innocuous phone call from uh, a reporter to one of his family members um, while doing a feature was out of bounds. He said, you can write me about me on the baseball field, that's fair game, but nothing off the field. You know, he would try to dictate these terms. And he would be, uh, you know, he, he treated them terribly. You know, he, he would just cuss them out, and he'd see them coming in after the game, and say, oh, what are you bastards out to, what kind of trouble you got to stir up today, you know, that kind of thing. And the other players were very amused at the byplay between uh, Williams and and the writers, that they themselves would never dare treat the reporters the way Ted did. Remember Don Budden, the shortstop of the 50s uh, for the Red Sox, better known as Booten Budden, uh, <laughs> for his <laughs> propensity to drop ground balls at the shortstop, told me a funny story about after witnessing one particular crazy scene with Ted and the writers, he said, Ted, how can you treat the writers that way? Ted said, son, you hit 350, you can do a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the last area I'd like to touch on is, uh, before we get to the clubhouse crowd, if you could, uh, it's, it, it's quite uh, prevalent in the book, and I think many people here probably know about it. Maybe some people on the uh, podcast do not know about this. So I'll let you go into as much detail as you want. But uh, it has to do with company named Alcor hmm. and Ted's head. Hmm. Uh, but also, what I found really fascinating was the father-son yeah. relationship. Yeah. Well, the last part of the book is really about um, a father and a son discovering each other for the first time. Uh, Williams, Williams uh, he, he, he struggled with anger in his life. I think the anger was rooted in resentment of his mother uh, for never being home for him. And uh, it was a, a double-edged sword in his life. He, he used it productively on the, on the ball field because he always said that he hit better mad. And so he would manufacture some feud with the writers and then go on a tear and, and hit 500 for a month. And, uh, but in his personal life, it caused him great difficulty. I think he was probably bipolar before they knew what that was, frankly. And uh, so this anger would bubble up at totally inappropriate times and places and caused him great difficulty. He went through three marriages very quickly. He had three children who he had little or nothing to do with, (coughs) excuse me, uh, growing up. But in uh, in the final chapter of his life, he decided to try and reconnect with his younger two children, um, a son and a daughter. The son was John Henry. And, uh, uh, you know, I I described the relationship, and uh, uh, my conclusion was that John Henry exploited his father, um, certainly, but also loved his father. And... um, he got interested in something called cryonics, which, for those of you who don't know, it's uh, not a science, but some, but a hope or a belief that medicine will someday advance to the point where it will be possible to cure you of whatever it is you've died of, and somehow bring you back to life. Um, a lot of holes in the theory. <laughs> they, they haven't worked out if Ted would come back an 83-year-old man or a young stud who could hit 400. Um, 
but uh, John Henry got, I mean, yeah, got interested in this and tried to um, talk about it with his father and Ted dismissed it and said, get out of here with that crazy blankety-blank. And um, I tell the story from the family in the book for the first time, because I was curious to know if Ted really wanted this ignominious ending. And uh, uh, John Henry himself died suddenly in 2004 at age 33 of leukemia. And to his credit, since he was the one who foisted cryonics upon his father, he, had his, he himself had his remains frozen. So father and son are together <laughs> in a tank out in this facility in Arizona called Alcor. And uh, only one Williams child remains, and that's John Henry's younger sister, Claudia. And she told me that Ted did agree to it. And she said what happened was that in November of 2000, about 18 months before he died, um, he was in the hospital getting ready to have a pacemaker installed in his heart. And the night before the surgery, John Henry and Claudia went in to visit him. And she said, by that time, they had decided that they, John Henry and Claudia, wanted cryonics for themselves. And they asked their father if he would do it with them so they could be together forever. The cryonicists call themselves immortalists because they think they're going to come back to life. So um, thus the double entendre in the subtitle, The Immortal Life of Ted. Um, and uh, she said when it was, they framed the question to him that way, Dad, will you do this for us? He agreed. Uh, but my reporting and research suggests that if he did, he was not of sound mind at the time. And I was also able to track down about a dozen people whom he told after the date of this meeting that no, he wanted to be cremated and have his ashes thrown off the keys uh, as his will specified. So um, it was a sad ending for the greatest hitter who ever lived. And the old timers, especially that I interviewed, were all, you know, mortified by the subject and worried that um, this would tarnish his legacy. Because after all, you're dealing with two generations of people who didn't know about Ted Williams as a player, but had only heard about him in the context of this crazy cryonic stuff. That you know, David Letterman and some of the other late night television comedians were making tasteless uh, popsicle jokes. And um, so they worried about it. But my conclusion is that um, with the passage of time, uh, people know that this was some sort of family deal and that all families uh, have their dysfunctional moments and idiosyncrasies. And, um, uh, and, and I think that uh, as time goes by, the impact of cryonics on his legacy uh, has, has uh, gone away. And that when people think about Williams, they'll think about him as uh, like the cover of the book, you know, young, swaggering youth uh, hitting 406, forever the kid. So. Well, that's a good point to turn it to uh, the clubhouse. <laughs> My question is about endorsements. I know we did a big endorsement for Moxie Soda, which I, I actually enjoyed. I've never, never had it. Some people like it, some people don't. But did he do a lot of endorsements for products or Moxie's, like the cheap one? How did he get into that, if you know anything about it? Yeah, well, he, yeah, he, he um, you know, the, the, the ball players didn't make any money in those days. And, and he, he got an agent. Um, a business manager, they called him in those days. And uh, he started endorsing um, all kinds of products. Moxie was just one of them. He even endorsed, uh, hypocritically, uh, cigarettes. Chesterfield. Chesterfield. Or Lucky Strikes, even. And, and he didn't smoke. And he hated smoking. <laughs> and, he, and he regretted it and uh, said that it was an act of great hypocrisy and setting a bad example. Uh, but... Uh, but he did. And then he worked for Sears Roebuck and uh, 
that was his first job after retirement, and he earned a good buck um, at that. So that sort of eased his way into, into retirement. Yes, sir. Ben, uh, could you talk about, and I don't, I never read this, but it was never documented, but I saw that in 46, when the Cardinals had the playoff, uh, that supposedly he was playing in their squad games or whatever and was injured. Yeah. Was it ever reported? Oh yeah. Well, what, this is what happened. The the, the uh, Red Sox clinched early, and there was a playoff between the Dodgers and the Cardinals, and uh, to see who would win the National League. So the Red Sox had about five days to kill. So they brought in an all-star team, including DiMaggio, uh, to keep the Red Sox sharp, supposedly. And uh, a left-handed pitcher for the Washington Senators, Mickey Hefner, who was a junk baller, uh, hit Williams on the elbow. And it was, uh, in the Boston press, it was like World War III, you know. And the elbow was blown up to, you know, this big <laughs> balloon. He, he was doubtful for the series. And uh, so I think that it... it uh, who knows how much it affected him. I think it probably did. To his credit, he never alibied. He never used it as an alibi. Yes, in the back. At uh, what point in the 1941 season did Ted Williams uh, quest for 400 take over uh, as the national sort in Joe DiMaggio? And uh, do you know, in the course of your research, do you find if there was ever any attempt to record that last doubleheader in Philadelphia for Newsreel or anything like that? Um... Well, I, I, I think uh, Joe's streak dominated the national news, and it, it, uh, it took the end of the streak for the focus to reemerge on Ted. And I, I don't remember what month. Was it late August that uh, DiMaggio, the streak ended? And uh, so then the focus went back to Ted. And um, I don't know if the last game of the, uh, the, the doubleheader in Philadelphia was on a newsreel. Or, I, I don't know that. Uh, but that was his uh, signature achievement, and it was uh, very courageous uh, what he did. I mean, probably everyone knows the story. He was went into the last day of the season hitting 399.6, and on the books they would have uh, rounded it up to 400. And uh, Joe Cronin, the manager, was talking openly about sitting him the, the final day and he said no way he knew it would be an asterisk on the record books that uh, and he backed into it and um, so he courageously decided to play and it wasn't just one game it was two he played both games and went six for eight <laughs> and that, that's that's really something that's really something and not a not a cheap hit among them either yes sir as a lot of great players, he wasn't such a great manager. How did he decide or get into, you know, becoming a, a major league baseball manager? Yeah. So well, I think he missed the. He, he, he retired in 1960, and uh, I think had his fill of fishing, and uh, missed the action, missed the game, and so they offered the Washington Senators, the worst team in Major League Baseball, they hadn't won uh, hit 500 in years and years and years. They um, uh, persuaded Ted to come back, and uh, he wasn't a very good manager. Um, well, they a very good team. But he he, <laughs> he did bring the Senators up above 500 for the first time in years, his first year, and so they voted him manager of the year. And he was probably the and the Senators' <laughs> attendance, which had been you know rock bottom, went up around you know 800 900 thousand. And he's probably the first manager to ever be a draw at the stadium. I mean, you know, what, what managers attract crowds? But he was very colorful, and, um, but ultimately not successful because he was a one-dimensional player. And all, all that interested him, interested him was hitting. He was less interested in uh, you know, the, the subtleties of the game, when to steal a base and a strategy, and he delegated all of that. And uh, when he was playing, he used to call uh, <coughs> all, all pitchers dumb. 
to their face. <laughs> and he continued to do that as a manager, which didn't help, him, didn't help the cause. Yes. Uh, the question is, it, just, it wasn't just the press he had problems with. He also had a problem with the fans. The Boston fans were pretty hard on him on occasion. Of course, at the end, he didn't tip his cap. And from everything I've read, I think he was right not to do that. So whenever he was riding hot, they loved him. And whenever he went into a slump, he'd get booed. And it, was just, it, it made no sense. Sam usually doesn't get booed. He had slumps too. Hmm. Well, part of it he, he, uh, he brought on himself. Um, he was very sensitive, Ted. Uh, couldn't accept criticism. He, he reasoned that um, he was the best at what he did, and he was trying his best. And uh, what did the hoi polloi know? You know. And uh, um, he and you know the, the the psychological dynamic between fans and players. And and if fans know they can get a rise out of a player, it's like poking. Uh, Tiger behind bars at the zoo, you know. You, you do it from the safety of your grandstand perch. And Williams couldn't let it. He had what they call rabbit ears. He could hear any boo. And uh, unlike the, the modern athlete that's that's trained um, to ignore any boo and not respond, Ted would go crazy. He'd give people, he'd give people the finger and say, "You." You, you, <laughs> over there, you know, and uh, he spat at the fans, and uh, Yawkey, Tom Yawkey, the owner, famously fined him uh, $5,000 for a spitting uh, jag <clears throat> against the Yankees, um, and uh, the fine never collected, by the way, um, but Williams, uh, ironically, you know, his popularity in Boston grew exponentially in retirement. It's like fans became aware of his uh, fragile psyche and embraced him uh, later in life and, and rather than in the present. You know, they, they, they came to realize uh, how lucky, I guess, they were to have seen such a player. Um, and uh, he was always puzzled by that when he returned to Boston and he and he was so popular, and he would wonder, why didn't they treat me this way when I was playing? And uh, it's, an, it's an interesting uh, dynamic, but I, I think people finally just um, realized how <coughs> fragile he was and embraced him warts and all. Yes, sir? Can you talk about the war years, uh, how he kept his eye, how he kept his timing during the war years, both World War II and the Korean War, and how he did in the subsequent years after? Well, uh, he didn't play hardly any service ball. Uh, he, he, he was very disparaging of that. And uh, you would have these overzealous uh, commanders who would want to recruit him for uh, their base. And, you know, he said, you know, he, probably, he played a little, but not much. And, um, you know, he was just an extraordinary talent. He, he didn't do much to maintain it. But when he came back in 46, um, he, uh, I believe he was, in, was he MVP that year? Yeah. Uh, no, maybe not. But uh, he had a great year, and the Red Sox uh, won the pennant. And um, there's a great story in the book about uh, when he comes back from Korea. Uh, 53. It was about mid-summer of 53, and he comes into Fenway Park for the first time, and he's visiting with... Tom Yawkey, the owner, and uh, Yawkey says, well, why don't you go down to the field and hit a few? And uh, he says, no, I don't want to do that. Yawkey could sense that he really did want to, and he had to be persuaded. <laughs> so, you know, it was early before a game, and there was only the, the concessionaires in there, and uh, he, out comes Williamson's very distinctive stride, and everyone, you know, there was a hush came over, and uh, some of the players came out of the dugout, and he stepped in against the batting practice pitcher. hadn't hit in, in uh, 18 months anyway. And uh, no batting gloves in those days. And uh, he went up and just started hitting line drives out to right field. 
and finally they started going over the fence one after the other and uh, maybe about five or eight in a row and then he flipped his bat in the air triumphantly and just walked back his hands <laughs> bleeding hands bleeding that's quite a scene this young man well when I was doing <coughs> research for my to Williams project in school this yeah. year what um, was the project oh she said project we had to pick somebody to do for a biography uh-huh. um, <laughs> I can read that one <laughs> <laughs> It's not nearly. <laughs> 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 it, it was the longest one in his class, though, I believe. <laughs> uh, well, you spoke about how his relationship with the media was never very good. And while I was researching, I came across this piece about um, how he was great friends with this one writer named John Updike. Is that true? Well, not great friends. Not uh, great friends. John Updike. Um, it's, it's a fascinating uh, story. You know, was one of the greatest uh, American writers ever, and uh, he he wrote this piece uh, for the New Yorker when he was about 26, three or four years out of Harvard, young, uh, you know, prodigy coming up. He'd already written two or three books, and he was a great fan of uh, the Red Sox and Williams. So he goes to uh, Fenway Park for um, the last game and writes this uh, fantastic story. If, if it's really worth uh, looking up if you haven't read it. It's a, I, I consider it the best piece of uh, sports writing I've, I've ever seen. And famously headlined, sort of tongue-in-cheek tongue by the, uh, by the uh, New Yorker, Hub fans bid kid adieu. <laughs> And, uh, you know, mocking the tabloid sensibility. And, uh, of course, Williams hit a home run on his last at-bat. And it was a dramatic moment. And Updike uh, memorialized that. And, uh, of course, Ted loved the piece. And when it came time to write his autobiography, when he decided he wanted to write it in 1969, you know, of course, he had... 35 more years to live, but uh, never mind. He wanted to write his autobiography. He approached Updike, or had an intermediary, and asked if Updike would write the book. But Upper Updike is no ghostwriter. <laughs> so he politely declined. But one of the interesting things I found out in the book, uh, Claudia the Williams, the, uh, Ted's youngest daughter, gave me access to Ted's uh, papers and Files and allowed me to, to rummage through his uh, files and see what I found. I found all kinds of interesting things, like letters from Richard Nixon. Nixon thought uh, Williams was the cat's meow, and vice versa. And a letter from <laughs> Updike. And uh, and uh, the letter from Updike it was in response to Ted asking. Um, Updike to go fishing, but Updike didn't fish. He said, thank you. Uh, the invitation would be wasted on me, but he said, uh, I just want you to know how, how much you've meant to me uh, in my life, and you're a model of striving for excellence. And he told him that a lot of people told, think, have told him that that magazine piece he did was the best piece of writing he ever did. Never mind Rabbit Run or all the other Updike classics. Yes, sir. Um, uh, you talk about ghostwriting. I, I did a book with Mickey, Mickey McDermott. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know if you ever saw it, but it's a, a funny thing happened on the way to Cooperstown. Yeah. Mickey was a phenom. And one of the stories he told me was when uh, Williams was close to dying, uh, he got on the phone and called him. They had been buddies at the, with, in, in, in the fifties. What Mickey played there for right. five years in Boston. Yeah, and you probably saw him play. Fitz anyway. So he called Ted, and they got into a long conversation. Mickey was really loved Ted, and, and he said, "Funny, you know, Ted, I, I love, I love you." And he was afraid when he said it that Ted would. Razz him or hang up. 
but Ted responded, I love you too, Mickey. Really? And Walt Dropo was there at the time, standing next to Mickey. She said, why don't you two guys get married? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've seen the book, and uh, I got a story in the book about McDermott and... Um, and his relationship with Ted. I, but I wish I'd known Matt. I, I would have put it in. But um, there was a... Uh, McDermott came up. Was it the early 50s when he first came up? Yeah, and late, late 40s. And, and he was a, you know being touted as a phenom and a star. Exactly. And uh, Ted referred to some article in the press. And uh, he said, uh, don't let that headline go to your head, Bush. I'm the star here, not you. <laughs> <laughs> That's in my book. That's in your book. Okay. Well, I think it's, it's, it's footnoted, I believe. <laughs> well, I'm not showing up, I know the book's in the bibliography. Good book. Yes, sir. Can you tell us if Mo Berg had an effect on Williams? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Everybody know who Mo Berg is? Yeah. Uh, well, there's, there's, there's quite a lot about Berg in the, in the book, and uh, what a fascinating character who could speak 12 languages and was a, a great spy. And uh, I think Joe Cronin kept him around just to, for humor, and um, uh, he was uh, sort of the Cronin's Pygmalion, you know. He, they, he, would, he would read... Uh, Nine newspapers a day. He would bring the newspapers to the dugout and read during the game. Of course, said, "What the hell are you doing here? playing baseball?" He'd say, oh, "The sun will rise tomorrow, and the Yankees will win." Or, you know, <laughs> and, but uh, Berg, uh, Berg and Ted had a, a pretty good relationship. And there's a scene in the book describing uh, Ted's first. Uh, Ted's first came up to the Red Sox in '38. And was cut, uh, sent back to the Myers because he was so full of himself and he was like 20 years old and so immature. He, he had the talent, but they, they decided that he needed uh, more seasoning in, in every sense of the word. And uh, But his first at-bat, if I'm recalling it correctly, uh, Berg is catching and giving him the needle. And uh, Ted says to Berg, oh, what are you, an agitator? And so he called Berg Edge after that. <laughs> and uh, they, they, they had a relationship. They talked about, uh, you know, the, the coming World War II and, and uh, Ted was interested in that. So that's, that's about all I remember. About Berg. <laughs> Anyone else? Steve? He was involved with several charities up in the Boston yes. area, wasn't he? Yes. Elaborate yeah. Well, th- th- I think this is sort of the redeeming part of uh, the story. You know, he, he had this struggle with anger, but he he basically had a good heart and he was kind, and that was evidenced chiefly by his work with the Jimmy Fund, which is the uh, charity for kids with cancer in Boston, and um, he devoted all kinds of time uh, to that on his own and raised uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, over uh, the course of his, not just his career, but his life. He stayed involved with that charity. And he would give, uh, he would go to the doctors and nurses and give them um, his telephone number and say, you know, if you think any kid here um, could benefit from a visit from me and if I could raise his spirits, um, I'll do that. And he would come at uh, all hours of the day and night and always insist on no press. And the writers would find out about it and say, he'd say, yeah, it's true, but you bastards write that. I'll never talk to you again. <laughs> and uh, and because he didn't want it to look like he was feathering his own nest and trying to diminish his Peck's bad boy image, you know. It, it, it was genuine, what he was doing. And um, he had a good heart, you know. It wasn't just with the, uh, the Jimmy Fun kids. He, he would help um, old-timers down on their luck uh, who didn't have any money. 
he might call up uh, an old um, an old teammate uh, who he knew didn't have much money and say, I, I'm raising money for the Jimmy Fund. Can you send me some money? And the guy would hem and haw and say, Jesus, Ted, uh, you know, I'm not flush right now. And Ted would say, God damn it, this is Ted Williams. Um, send me $10. So the fellow would send a check for $10 and Ted would take the account number on the check and wire the guy $10,000 anonymously. So he had a good heart. He had a good heart. In that magazine article, in reference to him, but he was capped. Yeah. God's don't answer letter. Yeah. Classic, classic line. One of the most famous lines. I think you remember that line, don't you? Yeah. No, okay, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, could you talk about the 1999 All-Star Game? Yeah. One of the great moments uh, in sports, really. Uh, I wish I'd been there. I just saw it on TV. But this was, uh, he was 80 years old, and it was, it was the um, All-Star Game. And they were uh, all announcing the, uh, the All-Century team. And uh, so all the living players uh, would come back. And, uh, you know, there was Hank Aaron and, you know, everyone else uh, and all the, the current all-star players. And so they, they brought uh, old Ted out in a golf cart and uh, brought him out to the pitcher's mound. And there was this, just this memorable uh, tableau of all the players surrounding Williams <coughs> and, uh, and they wouldn't leave the field. The public address announcer was saying, it's time to uh, resume the All-Star game. Please go to your dugouts. And they wouldn't go. And they just wanted to bask in his uh, aura. So that was quite a scene. Yeah. How genuinely uh, sincere and emotional was the Maggio Williams embrace at home plate? I don't think it was the All-Star game. No, that was 1991. It was the 50th anniversary of, of, of the streak and of Ted sitting 406. And, it, you know, I think it was genuine. Um, you know, they weren't both uh, warm and cuddly personalities, I don't think. <laughs> but it was a well-orchestrated uh, event with Ted coming from uh, left field, I think, and, and uh, both on golf carts, and they met at home plate. And, and, uh, and that was the time... That was a joint event, and then the next day, the Red Sox honored Ted by himself, and that was the first time he tipped his hat in, in a in a well choreographed plan. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he he had it planned with his son, and he had a hat stuck in the back pocket, and he said, "Today, fifty years later, I tip my hat to all of New England." And, you know, I'm going to get one of these. Roundhouse <laughs> tips. Did you uh, come across the rookie picture of the from Saturday Evening Post? Well, yeah, it's supposed to be Ted Williams and yeah. Mickey coming in as a as a rookie. Yeah, it's going on sale. Did you read in the paper no, today? I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, <laughs> Rockwell. Mm -hmm. It's they, they think it's going to fetch north of thirty million dollars. Wow. Famous painting. I've got a picture of that in my book. Which do you think is more impressive? Uh, the obvious four. Yeah, a good question. Well, Williams, I think, thought that the 388 was because he was 39 years old, and um, if he'd had just five or six leg hits, he would have hit 400 at age 39. So all of those hits, when you think about it, uh, I mean, they were all clean singles. He never beat out a hit. And uh, that's why he envied Mantle's speed. And um, so I think he thought that um, that was a more uh, significant achievement. Yes? Uh, you mentioned that also regarding the 46 series, in addition to getting hit on the elbow, the Cardinals had also resolved to have a different strategy for pitching Williams in that series. Do you know if you ever found out about that later on, and how did you find out about it? Well, I, I think it was talked about. The Cardinals talked about it after um, the series. First of all, they, they employed the shift on Ted. 
which wasn't that surprising because other teams were doing it uh, also. But uh, uh, let's see, who was the? Uh, it was Harry the Cat, Brakeen, or is that how you pronounce it? Brakeen. Uh, Brakeen, and uh, of course Enos Slaughter. Yeah, they they were they were talking about it afterwards, and they said that. Um, you know, they had both the the, uh, the Brooklyn uh, scouting report on Ted and the uh, the Cardinals' own, and they combined forces, and they decided to the best way to attack him was to sort of outguess him. That he would be guessing that he he would be expecting a certain pitch in a certain situation, and they would go the other way, and they had a lot of success with that. It was guesswork, I think. For, yes, sir. Uh, Ted Williams Scholar here. Yeah, and as the scholar and uh, the oldest person here, you're, you're going to have the last question due to time constraints. Okay. okay. Could you explain the reasons why he did not retire after hitting the 250 in the 1959 season? Yeah. That was his only. That was his only year uh, under 300, and uh, he had. He spent most of the year with a pinched nerve in his neck, and uh, so that was the reason he had a uh, an off year. And uh, Tom Yorkie, the owner, thought he was washed up and urged him to retire after that. But he wanted to go out on a good note and insisted that he come back for one more year and took a pay cut. Uh, they 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 offered him the same contract. And uh, but he insisted on a, on a pay cut, which was you don't see much of that. <laughs> and that will have to be the last word for the podcast. Uh, for those of you listening to the podcast, those here as well, the name of the book again: "The Kid: The Immortal Life of Ted Williams," published by Little Brown and Company, written by Ben Bradley Jr. It's a fascinating discussion. It's an even more fascinating book. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.